I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At Bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Drive Nation Podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. For only the second time in two months or something, there's been enough movement in the car industry, Andrew, for us to have a topical chat. There's been a little bit of news for uh, for a change. So uh, I think we're going to do a topical podcast uh, this time around. Um, does it also feel to you like things are starting to get moving again? I think this week is the first week where things actually do genuinely feel a bit different. Mm. Um Manufacturers, which have just appeared to have sort of you know crawled into a hole in the ground and gone into hibernation, are just starting to um, perk up. We've both gone out and driven a car, which I'm sure we will discuss later. Yeah, um, I'm being contacted by stuff. Um, so yeah, I end of the beginning, beginning of the end, I don't know. But it's um, yeah, certainly things are starting. I mean, we are nowhere near normality yet, and to, to be honest, I don't think we'll be back to any semblance of it or even our near our new normal until. Probably next year, I'm afraid. But yeah, definitely something uh, is a-stirring. Mm, okay, so we'll pick out a few of the bigger news stories from the past week or so. Uh, and then later on, we're going to um, take a closer look at a handful of the mo- more recent Drive Nation posts that have caused a bit of a stir on the DN page, at drivenation underscore on Instagram. I'm sure you all know that already. Anyway, let's get started. And of course, the biggest news story that we've had, probably actually since the start of the whole COVID-19 situation is that Aston Martin CEO, Andy Palmer, has been let go. Yeah. Um, I don't really know what to think about that. I mean, I've, I know Andy well. We once shared a, a car together in a 24-hour race. Um, he's always been, you know, a good bloke in my view. And what saddens me is that I think that his vision was a good one. No one's going to convince me that he, the idea that he had... Um, of creating a range of sports cars from a, you know, from an entry level vantage up to uh, you know a Valkyrie or something like it um, was a bad one. But as is so often the case, and which is what I find frustrating um, with Aston Martin, 
is the ambition was not matched by the resources. And I think that mm. what he was doing was right, but he tried to do it, too much of it, too soon. Um, and that required an awful lot of cars to be sold, which required cars to be you know, put out into the market, probably more than the market could sustain. It's affected... I mean, it's, it's, just, been, it's just been really, really difficult. But I'll miss him. Um, and you know, it's it, to me, it's really, really sad that a bloke who, because I can remember exactly what Aston Martin was like in 2014, how dysfunctional it was um, at the board level, and how down in the mouth people were about the company's prospects because they had this aging product. Um, there was not a lot, lot of um, you know worthwhile leadership going on at the time. And then Andy came in, um, cleared the air completely. Um, and then embarked on this, you know, fantastic second century plan. And, you know, for a while it all looked good. Now, you know, you cannot say that he's, you know, completely blameless. You can't blame it all on the collapse of the Chinese market or Brexit or COVID-19 or, 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 or any one thing. But I think he was unlucky. And I think, you know, some of his bad luck was of his creation. But personally, I'm sorry to see the back of him. And I hope that I wish him well. And I hope that he resurfaces in some other capacity elsewhere in the industry. Yeah, there are so many different factors at play. You've mentioned a whole load of them there. Um, the truth as well is that in 2019, Aston had, let's be real, a terrible year. Mm. Um, and the share price really tanked. Um, I suspect, despite those things, maybe the writing was on the wall for him when Lawrence Stroll came in with his investors and, it seems, wanted to make a, you know, leave a stamp and, and bring his own man in. Um, it's it's, it's really interesting because when Lawrence Stroll came in, I think a lot of us thought, were actually slightly surprised that, you know, that Andy didn't, you know, go, go through the outdoor as Lawrence was coming through the indoor. Mm. Um and, you know, there was that slightly strange presentation they did together, wasn't it's there, bizarre. around the time yeah. of Geneva. Um, and that was all a bit um, awkward. Um, but, you know, I, I, somebody has told me um, that, you know, Andy thought it would be OK. Mm. Uh, and that such is his relentless positivity and optimism that he thought that there was a way through um, in, in a way that I suspect that a lot of others probably didn't. And... You know, I'm, and I'm afraid, I've always thought that, you know, the IPO launched in the autumn of 2018 at £19 a share. Um, you know, they're trading, last time I looked at about 35p. Mm. I thought, no, to be fair, I think they've gone up, I'm afraid, since yeah. his departure. Yeah. Um, but, you know, his days were always numbered after that, mm. I'm afraid. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. He had four very good years at Aston Martin. He did some great work there. I remember, and you'll remember, when Aston Martin would go to Geneva to unveil some stickers on Avantage. Um, you know, there was a time where there was so little going on. Yeah, just reheating old soup, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, between sort of 16, 17, 18, they were producing some incredible cars. Um, there were some hugely exciting projects on the go. And it just all seemed unrecognisable from the Aston Martin that we knew from only a few years previously. But, God, I suppose you're only as good as your last year in that line yeah, of work. And let's not forget, you know, people said, oh, you'd never, you'll never get the Valkyrie done. It's mm. just too complicated. You can't do a car like that for, for, the, for the road. Well, my every, every understanding is that although it is clearly delayed, not as much delayed as the AMG Project 1, um, but Valkyrie is absolutely happening. Um, they said... Um, you, know, you can't do your brand new, an entirely new platform from scratch and build an SUV in, out of a brand new factory. Well, the factory is up and it's running and it's building DBXs. Um, you know, you can quibble 
rightly in my view about both the price and the appearance of the Vantage but as a thing to drive I mean the fact is that you know on Andy's watch Aston Martin hasn't produced a bad car mm, that's true. Um, and that's what saddens me um, because you think okay so he comes in and he makes a load of really great cars and yet suddenly you know the company appears to be on its ass and he's out the door doesn't seem fair to me but as you say you know it just takes one bad year and it's not a fair world and also as we we've seen it countless times before and i think mclaren automotive will know this as well as as anybody else producing good cars simply isn't enough to sustain a car company you have to get so many other things right as well you do you do and supply there are so many um factors as you say um but you know i think the most important one um is to not overstretch yourself yeah um and and sometimes in those moments when you think in the good times okay we can sell these cars therefore we must sell these cars we must build lots of cars and sell them because we can you know it's so easy isn't it to be brilliant with the benefit of hindsight but if they just taken a little bit more time kept the volumes down kept the residuals up um then you know the problem is it's confidence isn't it particularly when you become a publicly owned company mm-hmm. uh, then the city gets involved and if the city has a downer on you and the city had a downer on aston martin like i've rarely known it have a downer on any other company um company then the confidence goes and once the confidence it, you, you get into this terrible situation don't you the confidence falls so the share price falls and the share price falls so the confidence falls and, and down <laughs> you spiral yeah um and you know the job that Tobias Mers is going to have to do is to somehow reverse that and it's you know I don't I hope he understands I'm sure he does the size of the challenge ahead of him Tobias is such an interesting character I, I don't know him at all of course only having interviewed him two or three times at motor shows one-on-one um, it's a it's an interesting experience um, sometimes if you ask him the right questions he will tell you everything and more um, and certainly much more than his PR minders want him to tell you if you ask him the wrong questions, you'll either get a grunt in reply or silence. <laughs> it's the funniest thing. And you're sat there thinking, oh, no, I've, only, I've got a 15-minute slot here. We're only two minutes in. He hasn't said anything. And- he, I mean, you know, I, I can't complain about that because he's a car guy. Yeah. He's absolutely passionate about it. And if you're not, he, he'll, he'll smell it out in an instant. Mm. Um, and you know, you and I have both had fantastic conversations with him because um, you can engage on, on on his level as an enthusiast, and that's what he is. He just loves it. I mean, he loves big V8s. He loves big power. He loves sliding around the place. Um, so you know, I think he, I think his heart is absolutely in the right place. I mean, I know that he makes journalists quake in their boots prior to interviews, but I, I, I don't have a problem with that. And I've had some of the most. And I think the other thing about it, he does kind of understand, even those PR miners might not agree with me, where to draw the line. So he'll always give you something, mm. but he's not going to give you the crown jewels. No, that's, that's fair. Um, that's and, fair. and I think he enjoys doing that. I think, uh, I, because I think he, it, to him, it's kind of like sharing the passion a bit mm. and communicating it to the outside world. And yeah, so I'm quite excited, actually. What do you think of this? He, his success at AMG, and it's been tremendous, his success was based upon doubling quadrupling whatever it was amg's volume and you can the the numbers are out there and it's a huge rise in volume that he presided over and you can also see how many different models they've got now i think it's 30 plus amg models now which is incredible but how do you apply that same methodology to or not 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 the methodology but how do you how do you 
translate that experience into Aston Martin, which I think you and I agree um, should actually be pursuing less yeah. rather than more volume. Yeah, you need to go in the opposite direction. So I guess the uh, what would help answer that question is to find out just how pleased Tobias was with having to have all these AMG light cars on his books. Yeah. Um, you know, my guess is I'm sure that he understood the business behind it, but I can't myself see him getting terribly excited about, um, you know, some of the uh, SUVs mm. that have had the AMG applied um the AMG name applied to them. So uh, personally, I'm not that worried because, you know, I think the sorts of cars that if he could, he would choose to build are the sort of cars we'd be perfectly happy to see wearing an Aston Martin badge. Uh, And I think that, um, I don't think he'll have a problem if he feels the need to shrink the size of the the company. I think he'll just be more than anything else um, motivated to make sure that Aston Martin keeps on making great driver's cars. Um, which I think is good news for everybody. I had a conversation with someone a few days ago um, who would know about these things, and he was saying that the company he worked for, a huge multinational OEM, its new strategy post-COVID, um, and perhaps it was in the pipeline anyway, but it's been certainly been accelerated by this whole situation, is that rather than pursuing ever-increasing volumes year on year on year, they're actually going to half their volumes and increase margin and profitability on each car and that just seems like a much more sustainable model um and it's you know that's broadly what aston martin and perhaps mclaren automotive are going to have to do as well just at a very different scale oh absolutely right i I think there's no question about that that both mclaren and aston martin are going to have to massively shrink the number of cars they make and you know, and, and you're right. It is sustainable, and it is um, a much sounder footing on which to go forward. But of course, you know, we sit here blindly and say, "Well, they need to halve their production," mm. without thinking about just how many jobs that requires to well, be lost, both at the companies and in the supply chains. Mm. So you know, it's you know, we're all human beings. It can't be an easy thing to do to turn around to your employees or you know some supplier. Um, who depends on you for their living and say, well, you know, we only want half the volume now or you haven't got a job anymore. So, you know, there's a very serious side to this. But ultimately, at the end of the day, if these companies don't change, then they don't survive at all and everyone loses their job. So, you know, I, th- yeah. I think it's the, you have to look at in these particularly unedifying circumstances with COVID, you have to look at your least worst options. Mm. Um, and I think in both their cases, um, you know, rebirth with you know, as you say, with high, high, higher marginal, smaller volumes, it has to be the way forward. The, yeah, the profitability and volume discussion is so interesting. Let me throw some numbers at you. Um, and actually, there's one company in particular that demonstrates you can do volume and profitability, which is Toyota. Um, profits of £18 billion last year. Yeah. Um, just a staggering amount. Volkswagen Group, £15 billion, to give it some context. Um, and when it comes to profitability on cars, Ferrari leads the way. The average margin on each car is £75,000, which is a huge number. Okay, and we can put that number into context. 
So Toyota made £75,000 on every 44 cars. So they had to sell 44 cars to make that margin. Volkswagen was 56. So broadly comparable. Um, That demonstrates that both Toyota and Volkswagen, they've got good margins and they're doing huge volumes. Um, Hence, they make lots of money, uh, £18 and £15 billion respectively. Meanwhile, Ford, it has to make 908 cars to make that same £75,000. So you think Volkswagen, Ford, broadly, you know, similar business models, they're in yeah. the same market, similar c- comparable cars. Volkswagen makes 56 cars to make that £75,000 profit. Ford makes 908. <laughs> I just, I was just blown away when I saw those numbers. It's crazy, isn't it? It's, uh... <sighs> It's all that is down to working practices, um, but also with Volkswagen, does that include all cars within the Volkswagen brand? Volkswagen Group, yeah, so perhaps that's... Perhaps and so, so, it's, so in there, you know, you've got Porsche in there. Um, mm. I can't remember the exact numbers, I'm afraid, but I can remember not long ago in one particular financial year, Porsche, Audi and Volkswagen, the individual brands basically all made the same amount of money. But mm. Porsche on whatever it was, a quarter of a million cars, Audi on one and a half million cars, and Volkswagen on six million cars. Mm. And at the end of the day, they all ended up making the same amount of money. So, you know, it, to me, Porsche has always been the business model, yeah. um, particularly because, um, you know, the way it went about the SUV, you know, to begin with, you know, let's face it, the, you know, the Cayenne came off as a sort of, you know, byproduct from, you know, Volkswagen Audi program. Um, and SUVs, as we know, they're the only type of car you can sell where you can do big volumes and big margins at the same time, which is why everybody wants to do them. Uh, and the way that they have used the Cayenne and then the Macan to make the profits to build the sports cars that we um, that we all love, and the way the sports cars that we all love provide the legitimacy mm. for them to um, make the SUVs and still maintain their credibility, I think that is a fantastic business model. And I think just going back to the Aston Martin example... I think that, you know, I've heard people calling for the DBX to be canned, um, which I think, you know, I'm not a huge SUV fan, as I think lots of people know, but I think that would be such a mistake given that the car is now finished. Uh, it needs a hybrid, definitely. Um, but I can see a situation where, you know, the DBX, which I've driven briefly and seems to me to be a very good car, um, could quite easily provide, you know, big money into Aston Martin, which they could then use to make better Aston Martins of the kind that we would more traditionally associate with that brand. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, just look at the way it's worked for Porsche. It's, it's stunning, isn't it, really? I think one of the very clever things about the Cayenne as well is that they took that enormous leap from sports cars to a big SUV in one step. You know, yeah. rather than do uh, an executive five-door and then a small SUV and then a big... They just took that one big leap and gave themselves license to do everything in between. Yeah. And there, and, and there were people out there, and you're talking to one of them right now, who, who were going, it'll never work. <laughs> people were, you know, Porsche make, um, you know, make, you know, simple, light, two-door coupes. That's what they do. Yeah. Um, you know, and the odd convertible. And here is this two-and-a-bit-ton, five-door SUV. And, and, and I can remember saying, uh, you know, A, the Cayenne clearly won't sell. And even if it does, uh, the damage it will do to the Porsche brand long-term will mean it wouldn't have been worth doing to begin with. So there you go, folks. <laughs> So people really shouldn't listen to a word. <laughs> yeah, but that's that's always been the case. Yeah, if you, if you want to find out what to do, ask me and then do the opposite. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, something else we should chat about and something 
close to my heart, actually, as an Alpine owner. There were suggestions during the last week or so that Alpine, um, having only just been revived by the Renault Group, uh, might be in facing existential threat because of COVID-19 and the group having to make enormous cuts and the Alpine factory in Dieppe simply being uh, caught up in the collateral and it being closed down. And that would ultimately be the end of the Alpine brand as we know it right now, yeah. because without a factory, you know, what can they carry on doing? Um, there were lots of, you know, it, it was hard to know exactly what to make of those reports and those rumours. Um, it, a lot of them seemed fairly credible and, you know, we, we wondered as well. I think we said this on one of our live chats on Instagram, Andrew, that if, if you've got this sub-brand um, that's perhaps proving to be a distraction or that is perhaps taking more investment than you thought it would, um, perhaps COVID-19 is, a, as much as anything, an excuse just to cull it. Yeah, and it, it seems that for now they haven't. Um, that, you know, the Alpine brand and therefore the A110 that goes with it will endure for a while yet. I'm always a little bit nervous and cautious because I don't think that it's been laid out in, in terribly concrete terms. I think there's been a sort of, you know, undertaking that things are okay for now. Um, but, you know... My, my, my concern about all of this is that, you know, and we've t- this is something else we've talked about, um, is that it, you know, if the Alpine project is perceived to have been a commercial failure uh, in the same way that it was, um, you know, back in the days in the, when, whenever it was in the early 1990s, the A610, which was another great Alpine, um, it just disincentivizes people from doing brave cars, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and we all know that, you know, People listening to this and you and me, we are one particular sort of person and we're quite rare because we, we genuinely were into cars because we love the way that they drive and we can either read about an A110 or if you're lucky get to drive one as you do every day um, and understand entirely how that car is completely different and communicates to us in a way that is very, very rare. Um, but, you know, we are such a tiny proportion of the community and the gamble is, is that there are enough of us, not only right now, but going forward, um, who will to, there were enough of us to sustain a brand like that. And if this turns out not to have been the case, it's just going to make other people think, well, we're not yeah. going to take that risk. Yeah. And look what happened to them. Yeah, absolutely. I remember that on the Toyota Supra launch, talking to the execs and the engineers there, um, actually about the GT86. Um, and that project... And it was also the Subaru BRZ as well. That project was deemed a success by the skin of its teeth. Yeah. You know, if they'd sold only, you know, a, a tiny fraction fewer than they did, it would have been classed as a failure and they wouldn't have done it again. Yeah. As it is, we know that there will be a new GT86. Yeah. Well, let's hope that they that they continue. But even cars like the Supra, you know, Toyota were saying that if that, they'd not done that as a JV with BMW, yeah. there wasn't the business case for a car even like a Supra to to survive. So, mm. yeah. I don't know. But let's hope that, you know, that the, these cars do keep on going because they add texture and colour and fun and, um, yeah, well, they make our world go around, don't they? Yeah, well, they're the ones I care about. Uh, well, I think... I, I, 
Here's a smooth segue, right? Oh, you ready? <laughs> I also care about Williams F1. <laughs> that was a bit shoehorned, wasn't it? So, well, we, there were, yeah, reports. Um, are there reports actually, Andrew, or is it confirmation that Williams F1 is up for sale? Williams are looking for ways of, um, uh, you know, sustaining their the team um, and getting the finance necessary for it and one of the ways that is being looked at is the wholesale sale of the team um and i mean to me it smacks of all that is wrong with formula one um that williams is in this position um you know i'm sure again like with you know other organizations that are facing hard times at the moment and that we've discussed about in this podcast you know it's not all external circumstances but um, we are going to do a dedicated Formula One podcast um, at some stage, so this probably isn't the time to go into it in great detail. But the fact is, one of the reasons, and I would say the major reason that um, a company that companies like Williams are struggling, is because the rules are so skewed in favour of the massive manufacturers. Um, you know, be they a fizzy drinks manufacturer or mm. a massive um, car con- um, conglomerate, um, that the traditional teams, you know, let us not forget that, you know, that Williams existed and has only ever existed to build racing cars. Yeah. Um, it's not It's not trying to sell soft drinks. It's not trying to sell road cars. Um, and, you know, without Williams, you know, the, 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 in every sense, Formula One is a poorer place. So, you know, what I really hope is that the money turns up and that they are able to survive long enough to get into the 20, what will now be, I think, the 2022 season, um, where this much-vaunted pay cap comes in, or cost cap comes in, and they will have some kind of sustainable future. But it really, really saddens me that, you know, Frank Williams, who's, you know, 50 years, um, over 50 years, 51 years, I think, since um, he first fielded a racing team as a little privateer with a single Brabham, in 1969, um, that it's come to this. So, you know, I think fingers crossed because, you know, Williams should just be there. It's a great name in Formula One. It's got a massive history. You think of all the people, Prost, Mansell, Senna, everyone who's raced at Williams, you know, they should just, they should still be on the grid. It's actually a very damning indictment of Formula One itself if this great story team that exists just to race can't sustainably race in that category, yeah. you know? They should be helping them. They should be doing whatever. Mm. They should recognise. I mean, we always go on about, you know, oh, you know, Formula One couldn't survive without Ferrari. You know, I've always been on the view that Formula One could survive perfectly well without Ferrari and the same with every other manufacturer, including Williams. Um, Formula One, I'm sure, will survive it. But that's not really the point. I think there is a stage where you actually think, what's for the good of the sport? And if for the good of the sport is configuring things in such a way that you keep a Williams on the grid, you know, names that have been on Formula One grids for over half a century. That has to be a good thing to do. Mm. Um, whether that will remain in what we know is you know, a hard-nosed business on all bar the Sundays of race weekends uh, it remains to be seen. But I'm, I'm not hopeful. Mm. Well, let's wait and see. Um, okay, let's dig out a few Drive Nation posts. Um, one of the biggest ones recently, Andrew. And first of all, how good was it to be out testing a car again. This is the new 992 Porsche 911 Turbo S and the first car that Andrew had test driven for, what, 10 weeks or something? 
Yeah, I mean, I said somewhere that, you know, I, I would get excited if I was going to go out and drive a milk float. And I, and I absolutely meant it. To me, there are two things. One is, you know, it's a 911 Turbo S, and that is obviously an inherently exciting thing that is absolutely appropriate to get excited about the prospect of driving. But just to be out there doing my job again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just to be out there enjoying driving a car. And thinking about a car and what, yeah? you know, and what it's telling you. And yeah, it was it's, fun. It's, it's wonderful. You just, you know... It's amazing how you take it all for granted, mm. and you know, and, and we sort of moan and we whine about you know when, when everything is working as it should be, you know, having to be here, there, and everywhere, and how tiring it is, and everything else. <laughs> uh, and sometimes you, you are in danger of actually missing the big picture, which is that you know we are out there driving great cars, and mm. um, it was wonderful. It was absolutely fantastic. And like, um, yeah. like me, you you. Had the de- the car for six hours or something. Yeah, collected from Porsche GB in Reading. Correct. What did you do? <laughs> well, I had to write a story um, for, for 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 DN in yeah, the middle true. of it. Um, so what did I do? Um, you know, times like this, it's it's really really tempting to think. Well, I've got six hours, so I'm going to drive for two and a half hours down the motorway, which will get me to you know a great road, and then. You know, I'll punt it around that great road and then drive two and a half hours back. But actually, you've got a job to do. Yeah. Um, and I know more than enough roads. Um, Porsche is based in Reading. Um, if anybody doesn't know that, just off junction 12 of the M4. And if you go up um, in and around Lambourne um, mm. and up there, there are actually surprisingly good, quiet roads that you, know, you can't really exercise 911 Turbo S properly on them. Um, not if you're going to hang on to your license for any material period of time. Um, or, or, or behave in an antisocial way, but you know it's it's probably the ne- next best thing to go into the Welsh mountains. So I just went up onto those roads, which I know inside that did a couple of um, of loops that I know well, um, and just really concentrated on um, yeah getting my sort of mental faculties back in place and thinking mm-hmm. about you know the cold hard business of car evaluation and trying as hard as I could not just to be a sort of rabid enthusiast you know who's, who's been lent the keys to the chocolate factory um for the first time in, in in far too long so I did that and you know I wrote some notes and I then sat down and wrote the story um I then went and drove it some more I did a bit of motorway miles you know you've got to, you've got, got to do the whole thing but um yeah that was me how about you yeah so I, I did the same I know the roads around Lambourne and Wantage really well so I had a blast around some of them there's one road that's so nasty it's it's surface it's so terrible yeah i think i wrote in the piston head story the local authorities should put barriers at either end and only lift them for atvs and enduro bikes or just resurface it the, the road is that bad um so it was the first thing i did drive it there and just see how just drive it normally and just see how it deals with this terrible road surface um because i've driven cars along there that feel like they're going to skip off the road um and this one actually I thought dealt with it really well. It's a stiffly sprung car, but it's a nicely damp thing. And so it 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 worked with the surface really well. Um, and then I drove it a bit with a bit more enthusiasm on some of the roads there. And then I, 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 had to, I wanted to cover a bit more ground, so I went up to the Cotswolds, to some roads that I know there, and then back to Reading. Um, actually, one of the things that was lovely was just driving the car. There were no pictures to be taken, yeah. no video to be shot. I just drove this thing. But, and here's the killer question, would you have it over a standard Carrera 2S? No. No, I, I'm not sure I ever would have had a 911 Turbo no. over a really lovely Carrera. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? Mm. And that's before you factor in the 
£155,000 it costs to buy it. Yeah. Um, I'm exactly the same. I Actually, I would say that this one, because it does a lot of those things that the 992 does, the 991 didn't, in terms of the accessibility of the driving experience, yes. I think it's a really good turbo. It probably, probably is... Um, in its own time, the best turbo that there has been, certainly since I've been doing this job. Um, and I did more than... Usually what happens is I get out of a new 911 turbo and think, gosh, I really admire that. Mm. But without in any way getting passionate about it. Yeah. Um, and this was a bit different. I mean, you know, you can tell that they have... And we know that Porsche is very aware that the turbo, in some circles, has a slight image problem. I can remember talking to Frank Stefan Walliser about this uh, in March when we had our virtual press conference um, for the Geneva Motor Show. And he said to me, we are aware that, you know, people regard the turbo as being, um, you know, slightly antiseptic and we're, and we're, again, and we're addressing it. And I, th- and I think that he has done that to, you know, a, a significant extent, but just as a thing to get in and drive no, I think a Carrera is still a superior car. No question. Do you think part of it is that... I mean, if uh, put your foot down in that 911 Turbo through second, third, into fourth. How quickly are you just doing bonkers speeds? It's, it's sensationally fast, that thing. Which is kind of fun in its own way, but for how long? It is kind of fun. I've never really found... Once the sort of novelty of it dies off, and this is, uh, you know, and this is again another conversation. My concern about you know the electric sports cars to come, I've mm. never really found straight line acceleration to be that fascinating a thing. Mm. Um, you know, there are so many other attributes that I would prefer a car to have than an ability to pull my face off every time you foot, you put your foot down. Um, and certainly, you know, give me that or a car that feels light and lithe and, and, and steers beautifully, then, you know, to me, there's absolutely no contest at all. So, yeah, you're right. It does. It is, it is fantastically impressive. It is ridiculously fast. But after you've done it once or twice, you've kind of done that. Yeah. Um, and you know what that feels like. And it feels a bit uncomfortable, actually, to be, <laughs> fair, to be fair. Um, and so it, it's almost an academic thing. I think where it, it is fantastic is if you need to overtake something. Um, yeah, 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 and that sort of thing. And, and that punch, and and actually the safety, because you're just on the wrong side of the road for so much less time than you are in almost anything else. Mm. Um, so you know, it's not without its attributes, but you know, I don't personally, and I never have set a huge amount of store by straight line speed. No, no, I completely agree. I completely agree. And this 911 Turbo S, I think we both agree, it's not just a, a point and squirt car anymore. There's sort of a bit more nuance to it, but Compare it to a GT Porsche or even a really lovely Carrera, uh, and it's it, it's nothing like as detailed or as interactive. No, and I'm sure that's quite deliberate. I'm sure yeah. that there is a constituency of people um, who love 911 Turbo S's for the way that they behave. You know, they're never going to go, you know, try and put the tail out anywhere or, or, mm. or, or drive it in that kind of way. But they love having the flagship. They love the power. They love the look. Um, and you know, Porsche, given how other 911s cover all those other bases already you know there's a formula that you mess with at your peril so I, th- I think i think probably the most impressive thing that porsche has done with the car um is have is given it that a, an additional level of playfulness and accessibility without fundamentally affecting the reason that most people even if they're not you or me love 911 turbo s's to begin with mm. yeah yeah i think that's fair enough and although i will say as well that 
if you compare it to a more conventional mid-engine supercar, its day-to-day usability is just in a different league. It's like driving a Golf R every day compared to, you know, a McLaren Sport Series or something. It's, it's ground clearance, it's visibility, it's storage space. Just the, the ease with which you can use it is next level compared to some of the other more exotic stuff. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, I, 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 I lived with a McLaren for a bit last year and I actually found it, I think there's a perception thing here. Yeah, okay. uh, I actually found it much more usable than I mm. thought it was going to because the visibility out of it is actually pretty amazing and it does, um, the one I had, had a surprisingly big boot. Um, but what you haven't got, you haven't got the width of the 911, even though this Turbo S is the widest 911 there's ever been. Yeah. Uh, it's still not, you know, traditional supercar wide, wide. There are obviously those rear seats, which even if you just use them as additional luggage areas you know, are significant and there's there's also this perception you know it's a 911 it's related to cars which are you know pretty familiar and not a remarkable you know if you see a 570s parked at the side of the road you know if you're any kind of car enthusiast at all you're not just going to glance at it you're going to cross the road and have a look at it mm. see a 911 at the turbo side of the road you just walk on mm. so i think that you know it, it's because it's related to stuff which is if not affordable then not totally unaffordable um, then yeah, there is this perception of them being that, that more that much more usable. But it's also a figment of the fact that it's got you know four wheel drive and such incredible traction, and it's so quiet, and the ride is okay. It's only reasonable, but it's good enough, and it's got all the nav, and it just works, doesn't it? It's just mm. that's the thing. Yeah. It just works. Whatever you want to do in that car, it can just go and do it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think the just to, just to close off on this point that that relative anonymity compared to a more exotic supercar is actually part of the appeal for me definitely um this is some so i ran an audi r8 spider a few years ago a bright red one i don't know that's a car you're not remotely fond of i can't fit in the bloody thing well, they've removed half the leg room there is that and it, okay it was you know <clears throat> it was it looked great and it had that wonderful engine and it was exciting to blah 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 but I used it as my everyday car, and so that meant it had to fit into my life. And that sometimes meant parking it on the street outside my girlfriend's house. We didn't live together at the time. Um, and, you know, if I was leaving for work early in the morning, you fire it up, and it makes this racket, and yeah. all the neighbours hate you. Yes. And I came down to it one morning, and someone had put a, a brick through the window. I didn't take it personally. Maybe I should have done <laughs> It may not have even been a local, but... Yeah, well... And it just it just made me think that you know, a, a silver 911 would relatively just kind of sneak under the radar compared to a bright red Audi R8. Yeah, no, I think I think I think you're absolutely right. Um, <laughs> as you say, yeah, that anonymity is 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 an is, is an important component of of what mm. people like about it. Okay, so another post um, from Drive Nation this week was a piece about Millbrook Proving Ground, which for. For several years, Andrew, I think it was basically your second home. It was. It was. How yes. often were you there? Um, in the height of testing for auto car, I would say once a week was rare. It was usually twice. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, and well, maybe maybe not rare, but yes. I mean, I was there an awful lot. Okay, so this is the Millbrook Proving Ground, which is, and the reason we posted about it uh, last week. Is, is that it, this year, 2020, it celebrates its 50th anniversary, first opened in 1970. Um, it's, a, it's an industry proving ground um, in Bedfordshire, and it was originally opened by General Motors for its own use. 
um, for the Vauxhall and Bedford brands. Uh, and then much later on, it got opened up to the, the automotive industry as a whole and to testers as well, car magazines and so on. And there's been lots of filming there. Um, Fifth Gear and Top Gear have used it a lot. And the, perhaps the, the most familiar, um, you, you might well recognize it from the film Casino Royale, the Bond film that yeah. came out. You'll know the year, will you, off the top of your head? Uh, I would go, uh, I don't know the year, but it's, it's 05 or 06. So there you go. So Daniel, first Daniel Craig film, and he's driving a DBS, and he has to avoid a, a tied-up Vespa Lind, and he flips the car. Um, and that was shot at the, the hill route uh, at Millbrook. Um, so anyway, we wanted to have a quick natter about this, Andrew, because people, I think, don't necessarily... Well, they don't get to visit these proving grounds, and the perception is that they're just giant playgrounds for cars. I mean, you, in the images, you see all these different test tracks and skid pans and an enormous bowl. Um, is, is that what it's like when you're there? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, As long as the high views is looking away. Yeah, I mean, for, what can I say? When I was there most of the time, I was in my mid-twenties. Um, I always, well, usually had something interesting to play with. Um, of course you went there to do the job. It was the reason we went there almost always, because they didn't let cameras inside at all, was just to record um, performance figures. Mm-hmm. And so you got that, and you kind of knew you had to come away of that with you know, a certain amount of data um, using these fairly infernal early uh, speed recording contraptions. Um, and so yeah, there was, to an extent, a serious um, element to it. And also... You took it seriously because you didn't want your not to sixty time or not to hundred time to be, you know, slower than the bloke from car magazine. That's a reflection on you, isn't or it? Or not time. Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's important. It's important. You don't, you, you don't want to be remembered as the bloke who, you know, who, who couldn't get the job done. So it was kind of serious from that point of view. And also, I guess there were safety aspects in that. You know, there are cars travelling quite quickly in a number of different environments. But no, I mean, it was just the most fun in the world, particularly if you were out there in something quick. Um, you know, this was a place which had a, you know, a track you could go on to and put your foot down and you could stay there for as long as your tyres lasted, um, driving as fast as you possibly could. Um, you know, I actually, I got my first entry into the Guinness Book of Records, thanks to Millbrook, mm. um, because, you know, that was somewhere where you could just go and effectively do a lap of a track at whatever it was, 175 miles an hour. So I have lots of fond memories of Millbrook. Um uh, I had some fairly scary times there, um, managed to survive uh, all of them. Um, yeah, I, I, as far as its usefulness to the industry is concerned, uh, I don't know how um, sought after a place it is these days, but there was always interesting stuff buzzing around there. Mm. Um, and it was always interesting to see what was there. Um, but, you know, the the adrenaline kick that you used to get going down them, they've got a straight there, which is literally a mile long. Um, and it is so level, I believe it's corrected for the curvature of the earth, or certainly that's what they used to maintain. <laughs> um, and depending on which direction you're traveling, there's either a really fast, shallow banking at one end or a really, really tight, very steep banking at the other end. Um, and you just spend, every time you went there, you'd play chicken with yourself because you'd be sitting there and you want, you'd be, let's say you're trying to record, I don't know, a 140 to 160 mile an hour time in fifth gear in whatever you were in. And the speed readout, which you got in front of you, um, is reading 159.8. And your last breaking point 
is is already in your rearview mirror. And yeah, I mean, the amount of times that I scared myself witless doing stuff which simply didn't matter, um, but at the time mattered to me. Um, yeah, it was all rather silly, but good fun. So talk us through some of the tracks there. There's the Mile Straight, as you've just explained. I've mentioned the Hill Route. Um, you referenced the Two Mile Bowl. Yeah, the Speed Bowl. Yeah. Yeah, so that had... Um, I'm not going to go into the science of it because it's boring, but basically at 100 miles an hour in lane five, so the top lane of the speed bowl, um, you could, in theory, at least take your hands off the, off the steering wheel and it would just go around and stay in the lane. Um, with the result that somebody, absolutely not me, and I wasn't there, um, <laughs> did once set the cru- cruise control of his car to 100 miles an hour and then got in the back um, <laughs> just to see what would happen. Um, and I'm absolutely not naming names, but it wasn't me, I promise. And um, he was spotted. Sorry? Was he spotted? No, I don't think so. Oh, okay. No, I think he got away with it. Um, <laughs> I think, actually, there was somebody else on the passenger seat as well who could have steered the car if needed. Okay. Uh, so it wasn't quite as lunatic as it sounds. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you could go up there. And it, it, it taught me lots about um, not just driving fast, but suspension and aero. Um, mm. some cars I can remember in a TVR a TVR VAS Daniel far too young to remember what, remember <laughs> what that is um, but uh, I had to abandon a top speed run in that at not much more than 140 miles an hour because it was so utterly all over the place it was oversteering and understeering all at the same time and it was just it was just horrible and I, and I, I could just think, feel a big accident coming on other cars um, when I that Guinness World Record I remember I mentioned um, was in a 512 TR Ferrari and that was like a Sunday afternoon drive it mm. was so easy um, mm. and the limiting factor of that um, was just suspension travel it just ran out of suspension travel um, and if you tried to go any faster it would just gently edge up the banking um, and obviously you couldn't do that so you know it just did what it did and came down and it was it was all terribly easy um, I think the most frightened I've been in a car was in a 964 3.6 litre um, turbo Porsche 911 um, which we always had to max cars with two people in them one to hold the stopwatch one to drive the car that sounds reasonable uh, except on that particular occasion for reasons I don't recall I was on my own so I thought what I'll do is I will um drive around the bowl at 100 miles an hour which is easy and i'll see where my hands are on the steering wheel and then i'll lash the stopwatch to the dashboard at that point and so i'll just have to extend the finger and then i'll be able to operate the stopwatch genius genius so i thought i could do this on my own unfortunately when i got up there and it was doing over 170 there was so much understeer was it scrubbing there was basically half a turn of additional lock so my hands were absolutely nowhere near where this bloody stopwatch was and so and this is not something i'm particularly proud of the time but you're always worried about tires going and tires getting really hot and you don't really want to have to go down stop rethink about it and then go back up again so i just thought sod it i'm doing it and so yeah i did that with one hand on the steering wheel and um the stopwatch in the other Uh, and that's yeah i was quite pleased for that one to be over but generally yeah very fond memories of millbrook always being shouted at by the authorities for doing stupid stuff um always being slung off it because there was a tree outside the facility which you could shin up and go and take photographs of prototypes going around and they, didn't, they never took very kindly to that. Um, so we were always getting banned. Um, but yeah, no, happy place. What about the handling circuit with the, the drop-offs and the, the rough stones on the shoulders? Yeah, I, I, I hated that. It was such a Mickey Mouse little thing. Um, 
and you know, it, it's all to me about the risk to reward ratio and there was no reward you couldn't learn very much because you couldn't really hoof it because it was so narrow um and you could so easily damage stuff if you went off mm. um you know the hill route was actually much better for that sort of thing yeah yeah yeah, yeah it's uh I, I first went there when i was on auto car work experience uh so what was i maybe 19 years old maybe 18 i don't know uh, and I remember being driven in a Chrysler 300C, a V8 one, yeah. uh, on the concentric circles. And I won't mention who it was, but someone was trying to get some drift practice in, uh, not doing especially well. Oh, you've got to tell me. <laughs> uh, can I even... I th- I'm pretty sure it was Jamie Kostorfin. Oh. He won't be listening to this. Well, I don't know. He's a very, very senior man at McLaren. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he won't mind. No. Um, but I, I remember... But Okay, well, I, uh, I'll put my hands up here. I remember trying to drift around uh, many years later uh, the concentric circles in a Corvette. And it's a weirdly difficult thing to do because there's no sort of reference point And it's difficult to settle into that, into a rhythm where you're just doing one big lap. It's a weirdly hard thing to do. Yeah. I'm sure you've nailed it, though. <laughs> I've certainly spun a lot of things trying to do it. Um, no, um, I, yeah, well, I mean, I've done it, but um, I, fact, I think I have done an entire lap of it um, on Oppo, but more by luck than good judgment. Um, you know, there, there, there are some people, I mean, we can all do it and, you know, and do do it, but there are some people who find that sort of thing um, as natural to them as, you know, having cornflakes for breakfast mm. and, and others who don't. I'm, I'm in the latter category. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that, you know, when they make, uh, I mean, when, um, for instance, Steve McQueen made Le Mans, and he had, and he hired basically every Formula One driver on the planet to come and drive the cars for him. Um, when proper skid shots were needed, he went and hired a drifter. He went and hired a bloke called Rob Slottermacher, who was just the god at skidding nine seventeens and five twelves. Um, and it's interesting, you know. So it, do, it, it it doesn't reflect on your ability to drive a car, um, but some people are just really good at that sort of thing, and, and others aren't. And I'm I'm very definitely in the latter category. Oh, I'm not sure that's true. Well. I don't know. I try. Okay, I'm not bad at it, but um, there are plenty of others who are, who are far better than me. Mm. It's a confidence thing, I think, as much as anything. When I when I feel confident with it, I can do it just fine. Um, but often, I I just think about the consequences far too often of that sort of thing going wrong, and I just think, and I'm actually not interested in making a phone call and telling someone their car's in a ditch. No. Um, okay. Well. We've got a couple of minutes left. Uh, every time we post on Drive Nation, Andrew, about this Gordon Murray car, the T50, it gets a great response. Yeah. People really seem to love the idea of this car. Yeah. I think it's because it's the anti sort of 2020 era hypercar, isn't it? It's just doing. Well, it's the Alpine A110 of hypercars, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, it's got a manual gearbox, it's Normally got a 650 horsepower. <laughs> Normally aspirated V12 engine with a manual gearbox. Yeah. I mean, who wouldn't like that? It weighs 980 kilos, apparently. Um, but also, I think there's the Gordon effect, isn't it? I mean, you know, yeah. given that his last, uh, well, by no means his last car, but, um, you know, the car with which he is most readily associated is the F1, which is the car which is also regarded, I think, more than any other as the car which moved the goalposts of what a production car could do further than anything else. Um, and we've all seen the spec and, you know, there's a bit of fever going about it, isn't there? Mm. And particularly in this area, era of Valkyries and, um, AMG, can't call them project ones, can we anymore? Just AMG ones. Um, 
you know, I think there's a lot of intrigue as to who's going to do it better. And I think on paper, dare I say, the Gordon Murray car is the most intriguing, just because mm. it's the lightest of them. It's got nothing like the power of the Valkyrie or the AMG. No. Um, but, you know, as I said, normally aspirated 650 horsepower, 3.9 litre V12 with a six-speed manual gearbox. I mean, it's just kind of music to your ears, it'll, isn't it? It'll be fascinating to see what demand turns out to be like, because... You know, perhaps Aston Martin and Mercedes are doing what they're doing because that's what customers who are spending two million quid want. You know, if if it turns out that this Gordon Murray car, of course, it'll be sold in very limited numbers only. But if it's massively oversubscribed, that kind of indicates that at that level, certainly there are people who actually really care about the nuances of the driving experience. And it's not just about sheer speed or bragging rights or whatever it might be. Yeah, I think there are some of them. I think, I think there are probably, I'm afraid, more people who just, you know, I think what, if I've learned anything about rich people, sadly not being one of them myself, uh, I think it is that what they want is not necessarily expensive stuff, but stuff that other rich people haven't got. Mm. And you don't want to be the one who's not on the list. That's the thing, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. Uh, and when, you know, it has captured the zeitgeist and everybody's going on about this car which sounds so extraordinary on paper and maybe you've already got your Falcon order and maybe you've already got your AMG Project 1 because people will definitely have all three. Oh, yeah. There will be people who will have spent six million or more on this little collection. Um, do you really want to be the one who hasn't got the, the, the Gordon Murray car because it's going, to be the, it's going to be the purest, it's going to be the one that... You know, they trade off what guys like you and I write and, 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 and if we say, yeah, this is a new landmark, you know, they want to be able to say, well, I got one of them. Mm. it's important to them yeah I just want to drive it oh absolutely do you think we ever will yeah <laughs> I hope so do, I could flip my point of view on its head actually if if nobody buys this Gordon Murray car it'll indicate that the nuances of the driving experience actually no one gives a damn about that and it's nah, you know the, it's the, the, that, that's not really why they're buying it well some, some will some will I mean there will always be uh, there was a bloke called Tony Smith, um, who was the manager, a lovely bloke, manager of Genesis. Mm. And he had a McLaren F1, which he just used as a daily driver because he just loved driving a McLaren F1 and he could do it. And he went out there and he, he just drove tens of thousands of miles and things just because he just, he didn't buy a McLaren F1 to say to yeah. his mate, look at me, I've got a McLaren F1. Um, he drove a McLaren F1 because he just saw and recognized something extraordinary and was in a position to have and enjoy it. So he did. But I think guys like him, I'm afraid, with cars like that, are very much in the minority. Mm. Yeah, I think you're right. Okay, let's wind that up there then. Um, please remember, everybody, to like and subscribe. That's the phrase, isn't it? Go and, go and leave a, a review of the podcast wherever you, wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe as well. It really does help us out. Um, yeah, make sure you check out Drive Nation on Instagram, at drivenation underscore. Um, Andrew, when are you next going to be out in a fast car, having fun, assessing it, thinking about what it's telling you, and then writing a review? Is it is it going again or? Is it it is going while? again. Yeah, there is something which might be happening this month, um, but it requires me to leave the country, and it depends on you know however much I want to drive this car, yeah. I don't want to have to quarantine for 14 days. So yeah. the government's going to have to either create a special category just for me or adjust its <laughs> quarantine laws. Um, but if that does happen, um, and if it does, I promise I'll write about it at DN um, before anywhere else, 
that'll be quite something. In the meantime, I've got a Focus ST coming uh, if you're listening to this on Tuesday um, tomorrow, which I'm looking forward to very much. I'll be living with that for a bit and um, yeah, I'll let you know what that's like. Good. Um, well, thank you everybody for listening and we'll talk to you again the same time next week. Goodbye. Yeah, look forward to it. Thanks. The Drive Nation Podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees. Supercharging productivity for your developers. Providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.